0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and the chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on a new book, A Guide to Researching African American Ancestors in Lawrence County, South Carolina. And this book is authored by LaBrenda Garrett Nelson. Now, LaBrenda is a board-certified genealogist, and she's been board-certified since 2015, and she teaches and lectures on African-American genealogy and serves as the co-chair of BCG's Intellectual Property Committee. Now, she's written this reference book, And I'm going to have her actually tell you more about this book. So let me give a warm welcome to LaBrenda Garrett Nelson to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, LaBrenda.
0: Thank you, Bernice. I am so happy to be
1: here and to have this opportunity to discuss my book, Oh, well, yes, well, you know, it's always a, a good time to to hear what's happening out there and what people are doing, and especially when you're talking about a guide to research in African-American ancestors. So before we even get into the book, why don't you tell us why did you write this book? Well, I'll tell you, I got the idea for doing something, a book like
0: this, when someone contacted me through my website someone who was researching an ancestor from Lawrence County came across my website and in the course of communicating by email the person who was living in the Philippines mentioned that they couldn't wait to get back to the States to visit Lawrence and that is the remark that prompted me to think about other family historians and genealogists who might benefit from a book that combines a detailed locality guide and finding aids. Um, Especially in the case of Lawrence County, uh, there is data from the US Commerce Department that shows that between 1920 and 1930, the black population of Lawrence County declined by 20%. And we know that this was during the Great Migration out of the South that began around 1915. And in my own extended family, I know that I have cousins with roots in Lawrence all over the United States, in Washington State, California, Texas, and on the East Coast as far north as Vermont and as far south as Florida. So my first thought was that a guide and finding aids could help other transplants or descendants of transplants to jumpstart their research before they Ever have a chance to visit Lawrence, but in the well, course that's of writing,
1: But I have to ask you this question because they're already asking me out of the, on the on, in the chat room. What is your website?
0: It's Lab Garrett L A B G A R R E T T, Genealogy all one word dot com Labee Okay, Labee Garrett.
1: Genealogy.com. Okay, thank you. Sorry to
0: uh, no, interrupt no, you no problem. to give us
1: that. I, um, well, I was going
0: on to say that in the course of writing the book, it became much more than a locality guide because I realized that I had an opportunity to accomplish a few other things. Um, and, and one of those things is something that I talk a lot about when I lecture is that I could demonstrate The universal application of the genealogical proof standard focusing on the process involved when you're researching ancestors of african descent who lived in the antebellum south so throughout the book i focus on methodology and process and i include examples to illustrate general principles that you and i are familiar with but others who haven't been doing this as long as we have or been educated as much as we have may not know about or think about you know the need to look at original records for example or the need to resolve conflicting evidence Um, and so I think the the second thing that I did was to make a conscious effort to include finding aids that are not available at the current time online or that may not be targeted to 19th and 18th century ancestors
1: Mhm, mhm. Okay, so your your focus is to make sure that people understand the genealogical proof standards and in addition, as you said, you're going to share with everyone finding aids that they can't find online. So why don't what? you take us through Go ahead. your book? But before you do that, just tell people where's Lawrence County located in South Carolina?
0: Lawrence is in the area called the Upstate of South Carolina. It is in the Piedmont area. Um, for any of you who ever have attended uh, the lecture that Elizabeth Shone Mills has given a no- for a number of years at the National Genealogy Society, she does a lecture called um, The Problem-Written Backcountry of the Carolinas. And Lawrence is, is part of that problem-written area because it was the backcountry for so long at one point it was the american frontier and before the capital was in columbia when people had to travel all the way to charleston to file things people who lived in lawrence county and areas like that in the back country didn't necessarily go to charleston to file documents so that's one of the problems with researching there but it is in that Piedmont area the northwestern part of south carolina but I also want to emphasize that um, although the book focuses on Lawrence County, it could be viewed as kind of a blueprint for the process you would go through if you are researching any ancestor who was enslaved in one of the historical slave states. And that's an important point to, to mention.
1: Great point. Okay, so just take us through your book.
0: Well, I'll and tell what, you the... Um, I'll begin with uh, Chapter 1. As I said, I tried to include a lot on methodology. And so the first thing I did in, in, the first, in Chapter 1 was to try to provide some guidance for tracing a family's history back to 1870. And I did that by including illustrative documents and explaining to folks how one document should lead them to another document after they've gleaned all of the information that they can from that first document in South Carolina for example because it was a state that was rather late in requiring statewide registration of vital records so they didn't start to record uh, st- on a statewide basis marriages until 1911 and they didn't start to require statewide birth certificates or death certificates until 1915. But that doesn't, that shouldn't stop folks from getting back to 1870 when they're trying to find their slave ancestors. There are delayed birth certificates, for example. And I include things that you might not find written down anywhere else, for example, Delayed birth certificates, which were issued to folks who were born before statewide registration of birth, are found not at the health department, where you would go to find a birth certificate, but at the South Carolina State Archives. And another thing to note, and I I have a copy of one that was uh, issued to a great uncle of mine in the book, is that the that the, the delayed birth certificates themselves are not available the only thing the archives hold are the applications for delayed birth certificates but those applications give you a great deal of information and when I present a document I, I, I try to uh, illustrate all of the information that can be gleaned from that document and where that document sort of document can take you in the case of the delayed birth certificate for example you're given a birth date and the names of claimed parents, and you can figure out that that person should appear in an existing census record, and indeed in that case you would find that person in a household with the named parents at about the same age. The, um, another uh, illustrative document that I included in Chapter 1 was a death certificate of someone who was born in South Carolina before – slavery was abolished, and that document gave, provided information about the claimed parents of that individual, of the decedent, and that is a way to break through that 1870 barrier and at least take you back to a time when that person should have been and indeed was found in the 1870 household of his parents. The, the succeeding chapters are involve record sets from the South Carolina Archives um, that are not, half of which are not online, and some of which are online, but not in a format that is, is, is user-friendly in terms of looking for enslaved ancestors. The South Carolina Archives uh, includes online transcripts of wills, and we all know how important probate documents of slaveholders are, because they often name slaves by name, enslaved people by name, and may, in some cases, identify family groups. Well, the will transcripts, um, which we all know we should never rely on the transcripts, but they are there to look at, and what I've done is to abstract will transcripts that refer to slaves by name or that refer to slaves even if they weren't named because it's always worth looking at an estate to see if your ancestor might be found. Because believe it or not, as important a document as a will can be, there were wills that, named, that referred to my Negroes or slaves without naming people. Um, I should also mention that there is a 56 page index in my book. So for people who are particularly interested in Lawrence County I've tried to include every name in that index, except with the exception of the two chapters where the material is already alphabetized for ease of reference. And, and one of those uh, chapters is the chapter that abstracts information from will transcripts. There is another, um, another set, record set that consists of South Carolina legislative papers that involve black people, whether slave or free. And those can also be viewed online. But again, I have abstracted those legislative papers that specifically refer to black folks, and in some cases added a little background about some of the events that are reflected in those legislative papers. The um, other two record sets that I include, from the South Carolina Archive are not online. And so I've had to go to the archives to view them and in some cases borrow microfilm from the Family History Library. And that's something anyone can do. You can borrow microfilm from the Family History Library to view in the area that you live in. And the first is the South Carolina 1869 state census. Most folks know that the 1870 U.S. Census was the first one to name the formerly enslaved by name. But many states, not just South Carolina, there were other states that also did state census before the federal government enumerated the formerly enslaved. And South Carolina did an 1869 census, and the odds are that an ancestor was last enslaved wherever the ancestor was found, close to the end of the Civil War. Obviously, that's not always the case. After freedom, people went in search of families, but many times, formerly enslaved folks stayed pretty close to home. And this 1869 South Carolina census and similar state census records can help you to identify a location for a formerly enslaved ancestor where other records might be found. So those, that's one set of records that are, are not online, but the names in that record group that I've transcribed are included in the index. The, uh, and where did you find last, the
1: 1869 state census again? Well,
0: you can find them on microfilm at the South Carolina Archives, or yes. you can borrow, and, or you can go to the Family History Library in Salt Lake City. I, I've done that also but you can also borrow microfilm from the Family History Center to view wherever you live. So when I borrow, I mainly reside in Washington, D.C., and when I view, uh, borrow microfilm, I go over to the DAR library. That's one of the places where you can view microfilm that you've borrowed from the Family History Library.
1: So uh, what about the uh, state archives? I mean, you mentioned the state archives and the uh, online transcripts. Would the state archives also direct you to how you could get the uh, untranscribed uh, document? Well,
0: in the case of Lawrence County, and I suspect that, that the process would be similar wherever you're looking in the slave south, The fact that there is a will, you can find out that there is a will that happened to be transcribed and included in this collection that's online. As I understand it, the um, DAR and then another federal agency was involved in transcribing some of these wills during the 1930s. But one should never rely on a transcription when you can go and look at the original record or as close to the original record as you can find. And Today, fortunately for most folks, a lot of these uh, probate records are now online. Um, Ancestry has posted them. They're online on FamilySearch.org. Unfortunately, on FamilySearch, they're not indexed. You may find yourself kind of slogging through records, but you at least will know that there is a probate file somewhere because this will transcript is on file at the archives, and the other thing that I do in terms of the uh, locality guide aspects of this book is to tell you where in Lawrence County you can go to the the probate office, uh, the clerk of the probate office would have the original records, although today, and I think this is true in a lot of places, what you'll find even in the county uh, probate office are microfilms. Of these records, as opposed to the original records.
1: Oh, okay. So they don't have the big books where you can go in. Some of them do. I've done research,
0: Mm and in other places where that's true, but in Lawrence County, for the older records, it's all on microfiche.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So the the last. Okay, so yeah.
1: uh
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to talk about the um, tax records that I also included in the book. Okay. For the same, for the same reason as I included the, the data from the state, the state census that um, this too is an indication of where an ancestor was in uh, 18, September 1868 is the date on the records that I abstracted and included for Lawrence County. Um, and again, those, those, are, those records are the kinds of records that you should be able to find in other historically uh, historical slave states. The, okay. Um, the uh, fifth chapter is something that uh, I found useful to do when looking for slave, enslaved ancestors, and that is to um, we we all know that not every formerly enslaved person took the name of the last. Slaveholder. They may have taken a name that we can't even figure out why they took it, or they may have taken the name of a slaveholder who held some remote ancestor. But a, a useful exercise to do is to look at the slave schedules that were included in the 1850 and the 1860 uh, census records to see whether you can match the surnames of slaveholders with the same named surnamed black people living in that location after the Civil War. So what I did is, is something that I hope will help folks to kind of jump start that process because I first looked at all of the slaveholder or, or agents who were listed in eighteen sixty in the Lawrence County Slave Schedule. And then I went through every page of the 1870 census for Lawrence County identifying the same African-Americans who had the same surname. And I know in, in many cases that the the matches, they were, there were matches. There were people who had the same surname because they had been held in slavery by uh, folks with that surname um, I tried to again uh, highlight interesting information about these folks so it's, it's, a, it's a list it's alphabetized these, you know, the names of the slaveholders and then underneath those names the names of uh, same named African Americans and, and I included not only the head of the African American household but the names and ages of the people living in that household, and any other interesting information that I thought that that stood out for me. For example, um, one person indicated that he had been born in Africa, and there were several people who indicated that they were over 100 years old. So if there was interesting information to be had, I tried to include it, but the main purpose of it was to kind of jumpstart that exercise of trying to figure out whether There was some relationship between the surname used after the end of the Civil War and the folks who were identified as holding or managing slaves um, in 1860. Um, I did not do the same thing for 1850. It would have added another 100 pages to the book, but I did discuss the fact that there were people who were identified as slaveholders in 1850 who were not, in the 1860 slave schedules, and it would be worth looking at that, too, and going through that kind of exercise if you haven't had success identifying a slaveholder um, looking at the 1860 census.
1: Right. It the, sounds like a, a really arduous task to to do that. I mean, just thinking of what you did for the 1860 slave schedule, Uh, it sounds like indeed a great deal of of work. There is a question coming out of the chat, and they wanted to know, was there a Freedmen's Bureau field office in Lawrence?
0: There was a Freedmen's Bureau, and in fact um, there is a chapter that contains excerpts from the records of that field office. Um, It's interesting because I've done research in other places, other, other counties, and in North Carolina where there are voluminous records uh, dealing with the Freedman Bureau. Lawrence didn't have a lot going on there, and, mm-hmm. and a lot mm-hmm. of that had to do with the – so the records are – I have to do um, what folks today or in a few months, I guess, now that the Freedman Bureau records have been indexed, will not have to do, but what many of us have had to do in the past, which is to sit down and read through, like, every screenshot of what was in the, the Lawrence County Freedmen's Bureau records because um, there wasn't a way to, um, to, to search for names in these records um, until fairly recently. Um, and, and, I, and I guess my understanding is it's still not totally available to folks yet. But I did that, and I did go through, and again, abstract – names and and some of the facts underlying the reasons why the names were even noted of African-Americans in those records. There was a woman, for example, whose sons had worked and not been paid by someone who may or may not have been their former slaveholder, and that happened a lot. I see that a lot in Freedman Bureau records all over the South. But this woman was really her sons had moved away to Tennessee, but she was really pursuing the uh, payment. The 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 former employer seeking uh, the payment compensation owed to her sons. Um, there were very interesting records about uh, the fact that the 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 local agent wrote that because their the nearest real office was in the Greenville, the, the nearest big city. So there was no um, military presence to. Back up whatever they were trying to do in Lawrence County. So, and that may be a reason why there aren't many records. So, there's a letter in the in the Lawrence files that suggests that um, the uh, the agent was actually kind of chased out of town once. And at this time, right after the Civil War, people think of the Freedmen's Bureau mainly as helping the formerly enslaved, but the Freedmen's Bureau also helped. Former Or plantation owners, people who were uh, still had folk living on their land and they were riding into the Freedmen Bureau former slaveholders on behalf of their freedmen asking for supplies so there was lots of correspondence in um, in Lawrence about the fact that these plantation owners were not only refusing to repay what they promised to pay the government for providing them with supplies, but they were encouraging the black people not to repay either. So one of the things that I found that was interesting, there was a list, a very short list of people who had received provisions and actually did try to repay the government, and they don't identify them all as uh, black or white, but there were a couple of names that I I recognized, and I was able to uh, determine that. There were a couple of black people who right after the war were um, were in a position to uh, farm and to need supplies and actually even in the face of this pressure to uh, kind of snub your nose at the Freedmen's Bureau that they were on this list of people who did try to repay the federal government. So there isn't a lot um, to find in the Lawrence County Freedmen's Bureau papers, but what there is, I've abstracted them. I didn't... uh, repeat all of the names in every document but i try to include enough in my abstracts to um alert folks who might be interested in particular individuals that there were would be documents that they could um that might relate to their to their research
1: okay well and which is very interesting because even looking at some of the friedman bureau uh, labor contracts in South Carolina, you will see that the uh, the government actually had to make them rewrite some of the labor contracts because it appeared as if they were putting everybody back in slavery. And so those are some very interesting records to review. Well, I do have a question coming out of the chat room. You mentioned Africa. Uh, that when you looked at some of the the places where people noted they were from. Now, this question um, states, did slave owners in the area ever mention or show a preference for Africans or where the Africans came from? This is uh, from one of the chatters. Well,
0: to to answer that question, I have to give you a little bit of history
1: because
0: I think... Anybody who has researched in the Low Country, uh, the South Carolina coast, where the very large plantations were, and where long before cotton was king, rice was king. So there was a pronounced preference for Africans who knew how to grow rice, and you'll find that in a bunch of different history books. And the and I mention that only because the most of the people who were enslaved in that backcountry area were kind of brought there from other parts of the country, either from the uh, upper South, the upper southern states, Virginia and North Carolina, or the coast. There were never the large plantations with hundreds of slaves, enslaved people um, that you would have found on the coast. So I don't think, and they didn't have, they didn't grow the kind of crops that required a particular skill there. So I think that that is true, especially in the low country, um, the area above and below Charleston, but not particularly true in the back country. And I should also mention, you mentioned labor contracts. So surprisingly, I, there may have been, there were only a handful of labor contracts in Lawrence County but you look at some place like Georgetown County, you know it's the third oldest city in the in the country, and you'll see labor contracts with you know hundreds of people on them and and family groupings and all of that. But that you don't find that kind of thing in Lawrence, mainly because there were not people owning
1: hundreds of slaves, right. And, and a sample labor contract from Lawrence County, South Carolina, has just been posted in the chat room. But we're going to take a quick break, Brenda, and okay. come right back. Okay, just a quick break. Mm-hmm. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Also, just a little commercial here. Have you ordered your copy of Our Ancestors, Our Stories? This collaborative book offers insights into the African-American experience in Edgefield County, South Carolina, through the eyes of five very different authors. These family historians and storytellers have come together to share their family stories to inspire and encourage others. And to keep alive the memories of their ancestors. Order your copy today from www.thememorykeepers.net or amazon.com. Well, you have been listening to LaBrenda Garrett Nelson, the author of A Guide to Researching African American Ancestors in Lawrence County, South Carolina. And the phone line is open for anyone who would like to call in and ask a question. The number, 646-200-0491, and press 1 to speak to the host. Okay, La we'll continue to share with us about your book.
0: Well, the I want to say a few words about the seventh and the last chapter, because that chapter includes information on people who might not have shown up in any other record. And this is a chapter that includes inscriptions from graveyards at five African-American Baptist churches in Lawrence. And, and, and they happen to be churches where a lot of my ancestors were buried, and that's why they were included in the book. I had uh, walked the cemetery, that is, uh, the cemetery that our family went to when we would visit during the summer's Of of that church um, when I worked on a church history for that church and one of my older cousins mentioned to me that until she uh, flipped through that book she never knew where her uh, paternal grandfather had been buried and I thought that the it would be important for folks to understand how this type of information can be used by family historians And what, um, well, it it can be used to replace vital records that may not even exist. And I I used as an example, uh, I included in the book a photograph of my Garrett great great grandmother's grave marker. Now, she was enumerated in the 1870 household of my second great grandfather. And again, in 1880, she was listed as his wife. Um, I think most of our listeners know that the relationships were not uh, identified in the census records until 1880. But she lived and died before South Carolina began to require statewide registrations of births, marriages, or deaths. So we might only have those census records as an indication, but the grave marker is itself another record. And her grave marker provides evidence of all of those vital statistics that you won't find in state records. In addition to the year of her death, it provided her age, so her birth year could be approximated. And it also indicates that she was the wife of the man she was buried next to, um, which is my great-great-grandfather. The, um, another thing I would point out, and, and, and it goes to how important this information can be, and how it can be lost is because I know that I looked at grave markers like 20 years ago when I was just starting out and researching my family. And going back to those markers today, you could barely read some of the, um, the data on the grave markers. And, and I came across other markers that were um, just broken and difficult to read. So those, that information could be lost in another 10 or 20 years depending on the stone and what, uh, you know, and the condition of the graveyard and and the care it receives. But I did, uh, so that is one chapter, and all of the names from the five churches that I walked are included in the index, and there is information such as whether someone served in the military, because there were folks who have military markers, and that kind of information would alert you to the fact that there may be records held by the federal government that you could request or find because you now have knowledge that this person served in the military. And there may be um, church records that that actually survive. Once you know that you found a grave and that this person was somehow affiliated with with this church. So what I did was to... Um, walk these graveyards, and I try to identify the not the earliest graves so much as the oldest people who were uh, who were to make special note of the oldest people who were buried there. And in, in a couple of cases, I've included additional information. There was someone I had already recorded as one of the oldest pe- pers- people buried in a particular graveyard, he was born in 1825. And then I uh, came across, or an actually a, a cousin of mine came across newspaper articles indicating that this person was actually related to me, and I didn't even realize it. But um, So I did try to include some additional information, but like I did in every other chapter, I tried to include at the beginning of the chapter general information that about the context of, in which these records arose and how they could be used. Um, Another example is uh, the chapter at the beginning that talks about um, getting back to 1870. I remind folks that we should not overlook the possibility, because it amazes me that this kind of information gets lost, but we shouldn't overlook the possibility that one or more of our ancestors actually... Obtain freedom before the Civil War, before slavery was abolished. So, and this is another example of why I think, in the first instance, that this book would be relevant to anyone researching, particularly in South Carolina, because I try to uh, include information that really relates to all of South Carolina. So, for example, in the chapter that reminds researchers to explore the possibility that an ancestor was freed or manumitted before the Civil War, there is an explanation of how the laws regarding manumissions changed over time from the 18th century when there was no specific form required to 1800 legislation that prescribed certain actions. A deed had to be executed and signed by a certain number of people and it had to be recorded within a certain uh, amount of time before a manumission could take effect and then up to 1820 after which a slaveholder was really severely restricted um, from uh, freeing a slave in fact you could only be freed by act of the legislature the south carolina legislature and everything i read tells me that that didn't happen very much after 1820. And that's the kind of information, the kind of context, that a researcher would need to figure out what documents should or might exist if they are researching an ancestor that might have been enslaved and might have obtained their freedom. The, uh, and it is
1: helpful to, to have that historical context, as you just mentioned,
0: Absolutely. Because the other thing is that you might find um, that an ancestor was freed and looked as, and and the records might look as if he held slaves himself, but you would know that in South Carolina, and I have a situation like this in our family, the ancestor purchased his freedom in 1819, right before they clamped down, and he bought. A woman and two of her children, whom we believe was um, he, we believe he was the father of those children and he he didn't have the ability to free them, so he would have held them as chattel and that 's exactly kind of what happened um, that 's what it would look like in, in, in on paper, but the fact of the matter is he couldn't have freed them um, if he wanted to unless he left the state perhaps um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you would need to understand that and then There are so many uh, things that are not written down. There are people who, in the situation I just described, that woman was actually enumerated along with others in his household in 1850 as a free person. But there's no evidence that he got legislative approval to free anyone else. And there is uh, literature that suggests that, whether someone could live as free really had a lot to do with how they were reviewed by the white folks in the neighborhood,
1: and mm-hmm. that there were other
0: situations mm-hmm. like that. I think if, if you read like Black Masters, for example, where people were not legally free but they lived as if they were free until a debt became due, I think.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so the other thing is that, um, that I just want to mention about why other folks, even if they're not researching South Carolina might find my book useful is because I did make an effort to include other resources at the end of every chapter. You know, I did not include every record that's unique to African-American research because there are lots of books and quick sheets and things that list those kinds of sources. But I did try to include things that I thought would be useful to other folks. Um, because folks like me and you, Bernice, who have been doing this for a while, and I've kind of immersed myself in the world of genealogy. So we are aware of what's new out there, what's come up, but a lot of folks aren't. You know, I did a workshop as recently as last November with a group of folks that was advanced degrees, and one of them did not know about the free resources available on Family Search i had had everybody mm-hmm. in the research in the group uh, open up accounts, and, and the person asked me, well, how long will this last? So I thought that for people who need that level of information, it would be useful to include that. Um, we were talking before we went on air about uh, photographers, and there's a book that right. I list. Right, yes. It's, it's called Partners with the Sun. It's listed at the end of that first chapter where I have – Um, a discussion of a number of different sources that people can use and one of the sources I say is just photographic evidence because a photograph can tell you a lot of things it can tell you something about the economic status of someone it can uh, perhaps identify other family members and there is a book that was written Partners with the Sun and it's about these uh, photographers who were going around in the late 19th century going around South Carolina taking pictures of folks and I don't know how many of them are still um the, how many of their archives are still available, but apparently there were like there were a number of people in Lawrence County, so if there were people coming to Lawrence County, they were going all over to south all over South Carolina but it's that kind of information that I tried
1: to include um that I thought would be helpful to folks um, right, and that is helpful because we were talking about the the photo- a photograph that that I posted, and it was eighteen 18- I mean, excuse me, it was a 1912 portrait of my grandmother in South Carolina. And you mentioned that you also had uh, portraits. So it's really good to know that there were photographers going around taking photos. Because I have a lot of them, and I know you you also have a lot of uh, photos of your family from way back in the day.
0: So and, and, and that's exactly right. And so last uh, <laughs> January I, I uh, did a blog post that's on the website for the Board for Certification of Genealogists, and it was entitled Researching African American Families That Came Out of Slavery. And in that blog post I tried to list things that didn't even exist five years ago. So that's, I cite that. That's listed in the other resources, too, just because it has – modern resources that some folks may not know about you know they we there was no mapping the freedmen's bureau uh website that makes life a lot easier for a lot of people and so Mm -hmm. there is um, information that will point you to that kind of information if you need it um so those are and as i said earlier it's even though it focuses on lawrence county i think it does give you kind of a blueprint for the process to use whenever you're researching a formerly enslaved ancestor and the other thing I Fine. included that I wanted to just say a few words about um, not that I'm I would not am not yet holding myself out as a genetic genealogist but I didn't think I could publish a modern genealogy guide without trying to provide a plain English explanation of genetic genealogy the use of DNA to resolve questions about kinship. You know, a comprehensive treatment was way beyond the scope of this book. But I did try to I, to highlight what one could expect to learn from DNA testing and some of the issues that come up in other populations that also present themselves in antebellum African-American populations. But the first thing I want to talk about is the importance of linking DNA testing, and conventional genealogical research because there are still too many folks who don't get that. You know, it, you can test with all of the big three companies and not – if you don't have a family tree up and, and the people you're matching don't have family trees, you could be spinning your wheels uh, for a very long time. You know, I've had one experience where uh, – I've tested with all three of the big, uh, the big three. They say Family Tree DNA, Ancestry.com, and 23andMe, and and I made my father test with two of them. So his closest match, besides me and my brother, on one site, was a guy who had no tree, and I couldn't imagine. I, I knew nothing about it and didn't recognize the name. Until one day, I just kind of looked down at all of my father's matches, and I saw someone with the same last name, and she had a tree, and it turns out that that other guy was her grandfather, and he's still alive, he's like 90-something now, but as soon as I saw her tree, which ended with her great-grandmother, I knew immediately who they were, and and, and I emailed her and told her I could take her back two or three more generations because her great-grandmother was... My paternal grandfather's first cousin, like she was descended from my Garrett great-grandfather's sister. But she didn't even have Lawrence, South Carolina, as a place of origin for her. She had all of these other places. and so, But because she had a tree, we were able to make that connection. Without the document work, testing doesn't get you very far. So I'll stop preaching about that. But I really wish folks would understand that. Um, No,
1: but I think that it's it's a very important point that you have a lot of people, they're running out, they're listening to the commercials, and they're ordering the test, they're taking the test, and they're talking about their ancestry, but they're not talking about their relatives. And that's right. the part that's that's missing. That's the gap. When you have these people that match you, they have no trees, nor do they even know the where they came from. They can't tell you. Their family members. So you mentioned Lawrence, but they don't even have Lawrence on their family tree. Right. So I think that is a, a very important point for you to bring up when you're talking about a, a modern book on genealogy. You also have to talk about DNA and genealogy to make that connection. Right. You have
0: to do the the conventional research. The um.
1: Absolutely. So I don't. You know, I don't. I don't in my book
0: suggest that one company is better than the other, uh, although I do point out some facts, which is, you know, Family Tree DNA is the, is the oldest, I don't, that doesn't mean very much, but it also right now has the most comprehensive array of tests, um, and that's something to think about. And the, um, and then there, and the, and the other resources section does point to a number. There are really some excellent blogs. Out there for folks who want to dive into this, um, the so I don't. But another issue, and especially for uh, African Americans, is that the the results you get are, are kind of only as good as the the population of the testing company. And so, anecdotally, I often hear people say that 23andMe has the most African Americans, and so. And it's probably because a few years ago they gave away a bunch of tests to people who had, could show that they had four grandparents who were of sub-Saharan African descent. But now Ancestry has announced that it's gone, it's, you know, it's, passed, it's up to 2 million testi- tested, which is, I think, more than twice the amount of testers that the other companies have um, have uh, tested. But all of those kind of the judgments, the qualitative judgments I'll leave to others, but there are some things that um, I note about Lawrence in particular. There's something called endogamy, and it's usually talked about in the context of, of Jewish communities where that's the example that people often use, where there are lots of cousin marriages, and so people end up sharing more DNA than they should, than you would expect them to share. But, the, you know, that same kind of thing happens in rural communities like Lawrence County, like the upstate of South Carolina. I have, you know, lots of cousins who, they weren't, there were not cousins marrying, but there were brothers marrying sisters over, you know, in, in the same families. So I I have tested mm-hmm. a cousin who I'm related to through two different lines. And, and you do come up with numbers that um, are more than the shared amount of DNA that's more than you would expect if, it was, if you were only related through one line. And that's, I guess, that's the other thing I want to uh, emphasize, how really very complicated this all is. I, I've gotten a number of people to test in my family, and um, I thought, you know, what I'm doing now is just trying to confirm our document trail, what we think we know about how my Garrett line Is related to other Garrett's and so I have a a distant cousin I guess he and my father are third cousins and he's agreed to test he's he's in his early 90s his daughter tested and he and his daughter don't match any of the other people that I've tested except they match my father and my brother on exactly the same chromosome in exactly the same amount so I got really happy about that thinking that that means something until I uh, read all about triangulation, which, you know, I should caution people, there are some genetic genealogists who question the kind of legitimacy of triangulation, but as I understand it, you need people from three different lines matching before you can kind of infer a relationship about other people. And I realized I had not, I didn't have two, three different lines. I had basically all of the garrets I tested were from two different lines. But this one woman, whom I've never met, but I kind of another cousin introduced us online, agreed to be tested, and she said she was the she was descended from my great grandfather's uncle. And lo and behold, this woman, her closest match was this 92-year-old cousin, who didn't match anybody else except my father and brother, and she matches all of us. And so, although I'm not yet. Ready to call myself a genetic genealogist? I think that means something. It kind of validates <laughs> our document trail. But mainly, I just it sounds to, like I'm it conveying. means
1: something. Yes, yes.
0: What, what I what I love to be able to do one day is to just explain this in a way that other people can use as a as as, as kind of a a, a process are doing their. Similar research there. There was an article this month in the latest edition of the National Genealogy Society Quarterly where someone kind of did just that. Um, And but it is awfully complicated. It's good for people to test, but the results don't come, you know, spitting out like a slot machine. (laughs) It's going to take some work.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, nobody said it would be easy. Although some people think that, you know, they take the test and voila. They have all the answers, and that's not exactly the way it is. But we're getting close to the end of the show, and I would like you just to to summarize for everyone, first of all, that you, you've written this book, but what about people that may be thinking of doing something similar? What would you tell them? Well, I'll
0: tell you. One of my pet peeves is that we uh, – We, meaning African-Americans who are researching their families, do not have the kinds of finding aids that other folks have. And I know you and I have talked about this, Bernice, and you've told me about all the good work that's being done in Edgeville County. And I know Mm -hmm. that there are some things that there are some finding aids in Newberry. But if you look back, kind of, we don't have those kind of county histories that were produced in the late 19th, latter part of the 19th century. And really well into the 20th century, we were not included in those kinds of finding aids. I, I use as an example that I bought these, these two hardcover volumes of very nicely produced uh, burying grounds in Lawrence County, and there were no black people in those in, in, the, in the county in, in, in these books now, they've remedied that. They've since produced three kind of spiral-bound volumes. People are going out and, and trying to address this, but there still is a dearth of information available and, 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 and a need for other folks to start to, um, to collect this information to preserve it, especially, for example, the information you can glean from cemeteries because a lot of those, Graves and gravestones are just literally uh, erode, being eroded, and, it, and the information won't be there. So I think this kind of guide is needed for every
1: county where, where we don't have it, and there are enough of them where we don't have it. Mm-hmm. And, well, Brenda, how long did it take you to pull all of this information together? Well, I'll tell you, um I was talking
0: to uh, the, the woman who mentored the progen group I was in because one of the assignments with folks who have done progen is to do a locality guide so I had the, the bones of something like this and I actually started had the idea for doing this um, started it after I submitted my portfolio to the Board of Certification of Genealogists and I was told that it was taking five to six months to hear back from them so, I did this, I started this as a way to distract myself so I wouldn't like sit around fretting over whether I was going to be certified. I, I don't know why I thought I could do it in six months, but it, I probably worked on this for about 13 or 14 months. And, and mm-hmm. part of it was pulling together things that I had in my files because I've been researching my own family for 20 years, but it did take a lot of legwork leg work too. Um, during that period, I, worked, I walked cemeteries in the worst the worst time of year to do that in the heat of summer and wouldn't have oh, gotten yes. a lot of the data mm-hmm. I got if my husband hadn't been with me and willing to pull vegetation away from graves with his hard hands. So it took
1: it took over a year
0: to really pull it wow. together. Right,
1: right. But I right. think it can be
0: useful to a lot of folks.
1: Well, thank you so much for just sharing with us your methodology and the fact that you... Every chapter, you looked at the context, you shared with people why you were doing it, and then you went to the next step to share with them the various resources. And so with that, I want to say thank you so much, Brenda Garrett Nelson, for sharing the content of your new book, A Guide to Researching African-Americans Ancestors in Lawrence County, South Carolina. Now, how can people uh, purchase your book? Well, it's available
0: on Amazon.com, on BarnesandNoble.com, and on Xlibris.com. And there's also a an ebook version. So, if you have a Kindle, you don't want to get the hardcover version. Uh, there's a softcover version, and you can just get it on Kindle, on as an ebook.
1: Okay, and as a closing remark, we have a congratulations on your board selection coming out of the chat from uh, Family Tree Girl. And uh, so, and many people are saying thank you, LaBrenda. So, everyone, uh, please remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records and research at the National Archives and Beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walt raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Labrenda. Good night. Thank you.